0: So we are in a series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and in particular, um, we, we, well, the last three weeks, not a vain ministry, not a vain calling, and this morning, not a vain word. The year was 1521. It was called the Diet of Worms. Martin Luther was on trial. His crime, his writings... They included attacks on the Roman Catholic Church regarding doctrines of penance, purgatory, and papal authority. Cardinals of the church were overseeing the trial, as well as princes of the state. So you have both the church and the state presiding over the the trial was none other than the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V himself. This was a trial that could very well lead to the execution, which would be most likely burning at the stake. Luther was overwhelmed by the weight of the proceedings. That's why his accuser, Johann von Eck, had high hopes of bringing Luther to his knees to recant of his heresies. Johann asked if a collection of books was Luther's and if he was ready to revoke their heresies. Luther continued to delay and delay and delay and not answer the question and finally appealing, can I have yet one more day? One more day was given until four o'clock the next day, April 18th, Johann put the question before Luther yet again, are these books yours and are you ready to revoke the heresies within them? Luther at first apologized that he lacked etiquette of the court. Then he answered, quote, they are all mine, but as for the second question, they are not all of the same sort. Luther went on to place the writings in three categories. One, the works that were well received even by his enemies, he would not recant of those two books which were attacked which attacked the abuses lies and desolation of the christian world and papacy luther believed that to reject these would simply only encourage further oppression he said quote if i now recant these then i would be doing nothing but strengthening the tyranny three attacks on individuals he apologized for the harsh tone with which he wrote, but did not reject the substance of what he wrote in them. Luther stated, if he could be shown by Scripture that his writings were in error, he would reject them. Concluding with this quote, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not do otherwise, since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. May God help me. Amen. Luther rejected the words of men and fixed himself to the word of God. While none of us will probably be called on to give up our life for the word, the question still remains, would you? Are you so thoroughly convinced of this book, That this book is the very word of God that you would say you would join with Luther. I cannot do otherwise since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. May God help me. Amen. Now, I know we haven't read the text yet. We'll be reading it in a second. That illustration will kick us into the text. Here's the big idea this morning. The word of God is at work in the believer even in the suffering. And to the unbeliever, it issues a sober warning. Would you stand with me? The reading of God's word. First, second, first Thessalonians chapter two, verses 13 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writing. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when You received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So also always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. You may be seated. Let's get right to it. Point number one is the word. Verse number 13. I'll read it again. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. The Word has been a theme already in this short letter. We're, we're not even halfway into the, to the letter. We're, we're really just kind of still getting started. But consider, we're going to go back. I want you to put your eyes on the page. Look at your Bibles. We're not going to put them on the screen because I want you looking at your Bible. The theme that's already been projected Let's go back to chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Jump down to verse number 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. We're going to jump to chapter two. Paul then is going to exhort the Thessalonian church about ministry, about calling, that the gospel message and the gospel calling is not in vain. So, there, chapter two, verse one. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Jump down to verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse number eight, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. I love the building of this letter. That's why we preach expository preaching. It's why we work through entire books so that you get the sense of Paul is here in Thessalonians, is making an argument. We don't want to just kind of dip into the middle of this book and simply just throw out some ideas from a random text. No, Paul, right, when, when the original hearers received this letter, it was read in its entirety so that you gain the context. Who of us, my generation, pre this right? Like you sat down and you wrote a love letter, right? And you received a love letter. You didn't sit down and read three paragraphs and put it on the shelf and come back to it next week and read a couple more paragraphs and come back to it or receive a a sentence a day. No, you, you read it. You've read the full context. And that's what I love about these letters and what I love about 1 Thessalonians is we're preaching through so you get the full sense that added the building of an argument. And I love that building. The central figure thus far, guess what? It's not Paul. <laughs> and it's not the Thessalonians. It's the word of God is the central. And the context for that central figure is suffering it's conflict it's affliction trinity the word of god must be i don't like to say must be until it's time to say must be it must be our highest priority the word of God must be our highest priority. The word of God must be our highest priority. In a day in age when culture tells us you need to, you need to suppress the word or that, that we've entered into hate speech or whatever it might be, the word of God must be Our highest priority. And in a day when church culture in America is saying, let's water it down, let's water it down, let's water it down, we say, no, the Word of God must be our highest priority. Speak the Word, read the Word, study the Word, hunger for the Word, dive into the Word, church, sing the Word, memorize the Word. Be men and women of the word, be moms and dads of the word, to the teenagers, hunger for the word, desire the word. For those of you that hold, that wear the microphone and preach from this pulpit, preach the word. That must be our response to the word, not the words of men, it says, not the words of men. Thank God for individuals like Martin Luther, John Huss, a hundred years prior, burned at the stake, that would stand and say, not the words of men, but the word of God. Yes, I'll die there. Not just a token, that's a hill we want to die on. No, I will die there on the word of God. Let us not be indifferent to the word. Let us not be casual Towards the word. Let us not be, excuse me, pick and choose. This is the portion I like. I'm not so sure that I like this part. This one steps on my toes. I'm going to skip that part. I don't really feel like this is culturally relevant or culturally acceptable in our day. So we're going to skip that part. No, my friends, it is the word of God. And it has an authority over the believer's life. Let us not be sloppy with this book. Let us not be indifferent towards this book. Let us not be Sunday only, pull this book out, leave it on the, on the, on the coffee table the rest of the week. No, Trinity, let us be men and women of this book. And that's why Paul can say, I thank God constantly. See it again. Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Thank God constantly. You received our word as the word of God, meaning they're responding to the word. They're receiving that word. They are accepting that word. They are humbling themselves before the word. They are submitting themselves to the word. They are saying, this is the authority in my life, receiving the very word of God. I want to thank you, church, and I want to challenge you, church. First of all, I want to thank you. A few months back, we, well, we've had two Spanish-speaking pastors come through. One was our friend from Colombia, Eduardo. Another was Christian from Orlando. Eduardo, our Colombian friend from Riosha, probably didn't just say that right. The night before he stayed at our house, it, he just communicated to me, I'm nervous. I said, Eduardo, here's the thing. You're going to love Trinity. You're going to love Trinity. Here's why. Open your Bible and preach the word. Because what you're going to find at Trinity is a bunch of hungry people. And you are going to feel at home preaching the word at Trinity. You know, it's a tricky thing. My favorite place to preach is at home right here. This is, this is home court advantage. <laughs> when preaching other places, I just go, oh, I miss Trinity. <laughs> I miss home. It's tricky when you preach other places. Not only that, Eduardo, well, it's not his country. So, I mean, he's not, he's not at home in more ways than one. Not only that, he told me that night, I've only preached in English twice. I said, Eduardo, you will do fine. Here's why. I know you, and I know your conviction about the word. You see, Eduardo is an expository preacher, and I knew that. I'm like, Eduardo, open your Bible, preach the Bible, and the people are going to love you because you're preaching God's word. So I want to thank you, church. Here's the thing. After church that Sunday, we went to the Bricks Project, where a bunch of other Colombian pastors joined us that were in town for the Grace Partnership Conference. And so there's seven, eight, nine of us, most of them speaking in Spanish, and I'm just, yeah, eating. And I had a conversation with Juan. You guys remember Juan spoke here over a year ago, also from Columbia, Barranquilla. Probably almost said that right. So um, Juan was just co- communicating to the other guys who haven't been here. Oh, Trinity is a great church because they love the word. And then Eduardo started to just share, I love Trinity. Here's why your response to the preaching of the word, your hunger for God's word was pronounced to both of these men as they preached. So I want to thank you church. I want to thank you for posturing your heart. I want to thank you for coming on Sunday with Bible open, with, with ears open, with hearts that are just saying, you know what? Don't give me the easy word. Don't give me the comfortable word. Give me the word not water this book down. So I want to thank you and I hope encourage you with that. But I also want to challenge you, church. It says they heard the word. That doesn't mean they were in earshot. It's not what Paul's communicating. It's not that they were in the room and they heard the word. No, it means they heard it. They heard it owned it. They received it. Paul would not be thanking them for simply hearing the word being in the room. He's thanking them because they're owning the word. They're heeding the word. They're submitting themselves to the word. They're receiving the word. They're accepting the word because they're recognizing this is the very word of God. Now, I want to encourage those of of you who are our guests, and if I could be so bold, Again, if you have a home church, go there, be there. We're not here to to bring you into our church. But if you are a guest, can I just challenge you and encourage you? You need to be sitting under the faithful preaching of this book. And so if you don't have a home, let's talk. And if it not be here, let me help you find where it is. Because you need to sit under, you need to not only be in the room hearing the word, you need to be receiving the word, all of us do. Humbling ourselves before the word. That's what these guys are doing. It means they were humbled before the word. It means they were were loving God's word. It means they are hungry for God's word. The psalmist would put it like this, speaking of the law of the Lord, it says, More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Number two, the word works. The middle there of verse 13, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. They receive the word, and the result of receiving the word is that the word of God, not of man, of God was at work in you, is what Paul's saying. And that's what the word does. The word works in you. Have you seen it? If you're a believer, you've seen it. You recognize it. You're not the same person that you once were. What what is that? That is the word working in you. When you receive the word, when you believe the word, when you submit to the word, when you humble yourself before the word, the word works in you. What does it work? It works salvation in you. It works sanctification in you. It works. We are being transformed into the glory of the Lord. We, we are becoming more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. What is that? That's the word working in you. Praise be to God. The word works. When we say the word works, or when Paul says when the, the word works in you, what does he mean? He means it's producing something. Isaiah 55. For those of you who were here for our Isaiah series, not that long ago, we were in Isaiah 55, one of my favorite verses from Isaiah, verse number 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpo- purpose, purpose, <laughs> and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What is he saying? He's saying the word works. First Peter 1, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but in, of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God through the living and abiding word of God. For, and then he quotes Isaiah, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. I was reading this week. Richard Phillips writes this. The power of God's word was experienced by a Chinese man named Xiao, Xiao Hu Huang, who was living in Germany with his wife, Kirsten. Xiao was a Buddhist and his wife, an unbeliever. Wanting a special birthday gift for her husband, Kirsten sought a book written in his native language, Chinese, but the only such book she could find Was a Chinese translation of the Bible. God is sovereign. Hoping that her husband would appreciate the gesture, Xiao was not pleased to receive the Bible. But longing for his native tongue, he began to read it anyway. As he did so, he began to be struck by the truth revealed in the Bible's pages. Before long, he was persuaded and began believing God's word. This, in turn, displeased his wife. Since Kirsten was a Westerner and had rejected Christianity, they came into conflict over this book. Kirsten began to read it simply to argue more effectively against her husband. In the process, she was also persuaded and became a believer In Jesus, before long, they began studying their Chinese Bible together and grew in faith because the word works. Soon they realized that they needed the fellowship and support of other believers. So they attended a faithful church where they heard the preaching of God's word. They were then baptized as followers of Christ, continued to grow as disciples. Marvelous as it is, this example of the Bible's saving power joins countless others like it It is by the power of God, working through his word, that all believers are saved. The word works. You're here saying, amen, hallelujah, yes. Because the word works, and you know it. You've experienced that. You are. You're experiencing it right now. The word works in the life of the believer. It is no vain word. It is not empty it rains down on our souls and it produces what it's intended to produce. Number three, the word works in suffering. Verse 16. Well, verse 14 through 16. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that, that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. There's a specific context where the word works here. And that context is in the midst of the suffering. The word works in suffering. That doesn't sound real good in a prosperity gospel world. Don't care. <laughs> the word works in suffering. I've been asking you since the first week that we started this series, if you got a job promotion, you're living in first century, you got a job promotion to Thessalonica, would you join this church? And we all go, we want to be a part of a New Testament church. This looks like a good New Testament church. Of course I joined this church. Why Where else would I go? This is the only Christian church available. And then I want to keep asking you the second question to that or the, or the reply to that. I hope you would. I hope you would join this church. But know this, men, as you lead your families to this church, your family will suffer greatly at this church. There will be much conflict and affliction by being a part of this church here in Thessalonica. still want to join it? Because there's more comfortable places to worship. You can go worship Zeus just outside of the city. You can go to the temples, the synagogues. You can go to all sorts of places of worship, but this is the place where you worship the Lord Almighty and you will probably suffer there that's the context of this book Kim and I were together recently and she was reading to me a sermon from John Piper it was preached a number of years ago I know we could bring more recent uh, illustrations stories of suffering but I wanted to read this one so if about Pastor Kulichev. Pastor Kulichev was a congregational pastor in Bulgaria. This is in the 80s. He was arrested, put in prison. His crime was that he preached in his church, even though the state had appointed another man to preach in his church, even though the congregation did not elect this man to preach in his church. And so he was put on trial, and the trial was a mockery of justice. He was sentenced to eight months imprisonment, during this time in prison, he made Christ's name known everywhere. This is where we have to ask the question, what do we believe about the gospel, right? Like we usually tend to think of, well, we want the gospel to advance and that advancement should take place comfortably because doggone it, we're Americans. We should have a comfortable gospel and a comfortable comfortable advancement of the gospel, but here and if you're reading your, your, your Acts, the book of Acts, right, the gospel advancement comes not out of comfort, it comes out of suffering. And so I, that's why I want to read this story. During his time in prison, he made Christ known everywhere he could. When he got out, he wrote, quote, both prisoners and jailers asked many questions. And it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. Is God better served in your suffering than if you were prospering? That's what I want. I want that. I want that for us. God, if you call us to suffer, help us to suffer for gospel advancement. Help us to have our eyes more on the gospel than on our affliction. We say, yes, we love the word. Yeah, preach the word, right? Yeah, yeah, don't leave it on the coffee table. All these things. Yeah, we love the word. No, you're not going to be asked to stand before the Holy Roman Emperor and to recant your writings supporting the word. Forget about standing before the Holy Roman Emperor. Forget about the potential of dying by burning at the stake. Can you stand before your family, before your friends, before a stranger and say, I stand by this book. This is the authority of my life. I submit myself here to this book. Will you remain faithful to Christ even if it means you will be shunned, rejected, or even hated? Are you willing to miss out on the popularity, young person? Are we willing to miss out maybe on worldly pleasures? And in so doing, live for Christ, for his word, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. College students, are you willing to take that stand in your classroom as your professor makes a mockery of your faith and this book? David Curry, president and CEO of Open Doors USA, addressing a recent report regarding the top 50 nations where Christians are suffering. This was in January. He said, quote, the numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith and turning away from one another, he stated. But that's not what's happening. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God, help those believers in those 50 top nations where Christians are suffering. Their suffering, it doesn't look like ours. But will you make a stand right where you live for the word? The word, the word works, the word works in suffering, the word works in suffering and it issues a warning, verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. That's a sober warning. Hear me. Those of you who are in the room or perhaps watching via the live stream, thank you for being here. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, thanks for coming. Thanks for joining with us this morning. You've got more questions than we're going to answer this morning. We understand that. But thank you for being here and being a part this morning. Here's the thing. I would not be a faithful preacher if I didn't preach the whole text. This is where in the preaching event things get a little well, yeah, it starts getting a little hot. <laughs> difficult for the preacher. Our conviction about the Bible is that we have to preach the whole Bible. So the passage ends with this very, very sober warning, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. What verses 15 and 16 is saying is that this is what the unbelieving world has done throughout the ages. It's referring there to the Jews, it says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. That's the affliction that's going on. That's the suffering that they're facing. And that's been going on, well, back to the Old Testament, to the prophets, and then moving forward to Jesus, and the affliction continues in our day. And so with that the word of God issues this sober warning, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. You see, the unbeliever today in our day, you say, what does this have to do with me? Well, the unbeliever continues to kill Jesus, crucify Jesus. Through his or her mockery, through his or her dismissal, through his or her, I will ignore you, Jesus, Listen, even through his or her, well, I accept Jesus just like I accept all the other good teachers throughout the ages. If you believe in Jesus, if you say, I believe in the word of God, I just maybe struggle with the part that says that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the father, but By me. I believe the Word of God, but not that part of the Word of God, which makes you the authority over the Word of God. You see, we don't judge this book, this book judges us. We do not stand in judgment of this book. We do not come to this book and say, okay, how can I change it to make my life comfortable? How do I change this book? Now we come to this book and we say, God, change me. I submit to your word. Unbelieving Israel killed the prophets who spoke God's word, they rejected the apostles in the New Testament as well. Today, our universities and places of so-called higher education and secular humanism are hell-bent and devoted to destroying Christ. The killing of Jesus continues in our day. Their aim is to remove him from every public square, remove him from the counseling, remove the voices that proclaim him, friends, this Outside of a sovereign move of our God, which we pray for and believe is very possible, but outside of that, this rejection of Christ is and will continue to grow worse in our day. I don't say that to scare you, I say that to prepare you. This world wants to, verse 16. Hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles. It's okay, church. There is nothing new under the sun. Yes, I do think it's possible, living in America, that in my lifetime, I could be put in jail for preaching this book. Yes. Don't say that to scare you. Say that to prepare you. What is your conviction about this book? I hope you'll come visit me. What should we do? Should we go to social media and put out a political rant? Should we stay home and cower? Should we be silent? Trinity Community Church exists. To treasure Christ, grow in Christ, and proclaim Christ. That's what we're going to do. Unbeliever, Paul does not hesitate to show us that those who refuse God's word, those who refuse the offers of salvation, will face divine wrath. But God's wrath has come upon them. Verse 16. To the unbeliever, last thought. To the unbeliever and then to the believer. You can stand with me. This is how we'll close. To the unbeliever, if you would like to know more about Christ, we would love to share with you, chat with you, See, talk to the person who invited you. Come chat with me after the service. We have other leaders here in the room that would love to get with you and chat with you. Believer. Specifically I want to address the believer. You are genuinely repentive of your sin. You are gentil- g- genuinely aware of your need for the savior. And yet, you remain indifferent towards his word. I want to invite you to repent.